Hello and welcome to this, the eighth edition of the BLS Report. The BLS Report is a series of podcasts on issues of interest to the members of the business law section of the Law Council of Australia and the wider legal community. The series honours the legacy of our friend and mentor, the late Professor Bob Baxt AO, one of the founders and key drivers of the BLS. I'm John Keeves, a partner with Johnson Winter and Slattery and a member of the executive of the business law section. With me today is Professor Pamela Hanrahan of the University of New South Wales Business School. Pamela is also a member of the BLS Executive, a corporations and financial services lawyer, and among other things, contributes a regular legal column to the company director magazine. Hello, Pamela. Hello, John. Today, we are going further into the digital labyrinth. Last time it was cybersecurity. This time it is cryptocurrency and digital tokens. In October 2021, the Senate Select Committee on Australia as a Technology and Financial Centre delivered its final report on digital assets. A couple of weeks ago, one of Australia's big four banks announced that they would add cryptocurrencies to their banking app. Uh, Late last month, ASIC uh, released guidance on crypto asset-related investment products. And today, in the Financial Review, there was a headline, RBA warns of faddish crypto crash. So it's timely. Thanks, John. We're absolutely delighted to have three leading lawyers in this area to help us navigate the digital maze. First, we have Hannah Glass. Hannah is Hannah is a senior associate in King and Wood Mallison's financial markets and systems team, specialising in fintech, blockchain, payments, and regtech. She's advised a range of clients from startups and crypto asset exchanges to industry bodies, ASX 50 companies, and governments. She sits on the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources National Blockchain Roadmap Steering Committee, advising on the adoption of distributed ledger technology and is the chair of the RegTech Working Group. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you. Pleasure to be here today. We also have Susanna Wilkinson, who's co-digital law head at Herbert Smith Freehills. Susanna is co-head of the Global Digital Law Group at HSF. Her work focuses on law and risk in emerging technologies, specialising in digital assets, blockchain, automation and smart legal contracts. She is a director and co-founder of the Digital Law Association and sits on the Digital Commerce Committee of the Law Council of Australia. Hello, Susanna. Thank you so much for having me. Our third member is BLS Executive and long-serving BLS Digital Commerce Committee member, Philip Argy. Philip is a mediator, arbitrator, expert determiner, litigator, computer programmer, physicist, and all-round techno-magician. He is the principal of argystar.com. Thanks for joining us, Philip. Thanks for having me, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela, and uh, welcome to our guests. Okay, I have to admit that while I do own a soldering iron, an Arduino, and a Raspberry Pi, I really don't know a lot about crypto, digital assets, and so on, and I suspect many members of the BLS would be in a similar spot. So to get us started, Philip, in simple terms, what is all this about and why does it matter? So, look, I think one way of thinking of so-called cryptocurrency is a bit like casino chips. Uh, You can build up a stash of them, and while you're in the casino, they certainly have some value. But you could also take them home, and you you would actually have a stack of casino chips. So you'd have them as an asset, but unless you could trade them with somebody, they would have no value or no no relevant value. Um, But what if each of them, instead of being a physical 
plastic chip was represented by a unique digital credential. So a bit like, if you like, a registration certificate for your car or, or a certificate of title for a house, the, the digital certificate is a proxy for the item. And so then instead of having a pile of physical chips, you would only need to have on your computer uh, in a file somewhere, a pile of the digital certificates that represented each of the chips. And because each digital certificate is unique to a chip, a bit like a banknote that has a serial number, um, they're, they're given a, a funky name. They're called non-fungible tokens, often NFTs, if you've heard of that expression. Non-fungible just means, a matter of English, uh, each one is unique. And so a bit like a banknote, it has a serial number. No two banknotes have the same serial number. So instead of a, a banknote, you could have a certificate, certificate of title to that banknote. And you could then trade uh, the certificates of title. So a bit like, um, you know, in the old days, we had trinkets. And then we substituted trinkets for paper money. And then people started trading the paper money instead of the underlying trinkets. And today, of course, we trade paper money instead of the underlying gold bullion that's sitting somewhere. Um, so cryptocurrency is basically, um, instead of having this serial number or this digital certificate centrally tracked and recorded, uh, because it's on your computer, on your phone, wherever you have it, uh, it can be traded without being tracked by any single person. And as you'll learn later in terms of blockchain and similar distributed ledger technologies, not only do you have a record of it on your phone, the, the so-called blockchain has a record of where they all are as well. And everybody who has a copy of that entry in the blockchain has the same copy. And you'll hear about why that's important. The safety in numbers and everybody agreeing makes it almost impossible for anybody to fiddle a single copy and try and forge one because everybody won't agree that that's valid. So um, why, that's why cryptocurrency is sometimes a mere asset and sometimes can look like real currency. So it's an asset because you hold your collection of digital currency, but unless you can find somebody who will give you value for it, it's not a real currency. It's only a currency amongst those who are prepared to recognize it as a currency. So that, that, in a nutshell, is what we're going to talk about today. Thank you, Philip. That was really helpful. Uh, Susanna, can I ask you to follow on from that? And just can you tell us a little bit about what the practical implications and significance of digital assets might be? I was thinking swap cards, which probably will tell all the listeners exactly how old I am. Uh, swap cards don't have any practical use in the economy beyond being something that we trade amongst other people. Do digital assets have a different significance from swap cards? Yeah, so digital assets can either be natively digital, i.e. You know, effectively they're computer code that only exists in the digital realm, or they can also be a digital representation of something physical. Um, so for the purposes of this conversation, let's focus on those digitally native or, or crypto assets. Um, and we'll save the other types for future podcasts because they're really interesting in their own right. When we look at the significance of digital assets, 
you know, if we think throughout human history, smart people have been solving problems that the rest of us didn't know we even had. And distributed ledger technology, better known as blockchain, is a foundational technology that's given rise to digital assets. And you can think of it as simply another layer on top of existing technologies like the internet and computer networks and automation. Now, at the risk of drastically oversimplifying things, blockchain came about to solve a particular problem. And that was the need to rely on centralized entities for payments. And if we think to the era of global financial crisis, this was really about the banks. And the idea was to find a way to store and transfer value directly from one person to another without going through that central entity. Now, blockchain, as a very quick refresher, it's effectively a database that's replicated amongst the network of computers. It keeps a record of everything that's been added to that ledger um, in the same way that my DNA is a record of my ancestry that can't be changed. So new transactions can't be added without being verified. And once they're added, they can't be removed. But like all good foundational technologies, the core concepts actually have wide ranging use cases and the practical implications that we're seeing now from this new foundational technology is an increase in the different ways that we can use um, effectively digital assets. So we have billions of people connected um, by existing computer networks and they've now got new ways to trade directly with each other and they're inventing new things to trade. So in many cases, as I said, the need for an entity or an institution to be the intermediary will be optional um, and people can trade directly person to person or peer to peer. So I think as well, we can easily get a bit bamboozled by the technology, but not very many of us stop to wonder how the internet works when we buy on Amazon. And likewise, in time, most people won't need to understand the maps and the cryptography and the automation that go into these digital assets. Um, but rather, it's all going to be done through a snazzy mobile app and a slick user interface. Um, so in the same way that the web radically changed the way that we communicate and do business, now we have this new sort of wave of digital assets that allow us to store value or store information in a digital form um, without the need to rely on central agencies or intermediaries. And this has lots of flow on effects in um, reducing system inefficiencies, um, in maintaining a single shared record um, of transactions and audit trails. And there's one more point that I'd like to make, which I think is important to understand the implications of digital assets. And that's in particular when we're talking about digitally native um, digital assets. They're effectively computer code. So for every transaction that they're involved in, they develop a history or an audit trail, if you will. And this means that the asset is growing and changing over time. And it also means that while a particular digital asset or a token might've been created with a specific purpose in mind at the outset, that purpose can change over time. So if we take Philips casino chip analogy, at the outset, that chip or that token might be coded with specific permissioning so that it can't be transferred out of that casino's ecosystem. But by changing the permissioning in the code, that token can then be transferred beyond the casino ecosystem, which means that its attributes might change. And this becomes really relevant when we come to think about how the law should apply to digital assets. Hannah, can you tell us a little bit about the novel features of digital assets that cause some of the legal complexities that we've been hearing about? Sure thing. Thanks, Pamela. 
I think the first thing to remember when we're considering digital assets as a whole is we're really talking about the actual technology when we talk about a digital asset. So we think about what is the technology on which this asset is recorded. And most of the time, the subject we're talking about today is really blockchain or distributed ledger technology. When we actually go into the asset, it's not the digital part we care about, but actually what is the asset itself? And Philip gave a great example at the beginning when he was talking about casino chips. Now, the brilliant thing about casino chips is they're really just pieces of plastic. But the casino recognizes that that piece of plastic is actually worth an amount of money. And within the casino environment, everyone agrees that that piece of plastic is worth five, twenty, or five hundred dollars. When but when you're out of that, you may not recognize it as being worth that amount of money. However, others may actually accept that that chip is still worth five hundred dollars, and then they would you can pass that chip on, and someone goes back into the casino and cashes it out. Same thing that happens with digital assets. We need to look beyond the digital to work out what the actual asset is itself. And this is where some of that sort of legal and regulatory complexity might arise, because in focusing on the technology, we actually are sometimes clouded as to considering what the asset is. So if we take a step back and we look at where did this all start, and it really started with Bitcoin, the first question wasn't, what is Bitcoin? And, well, it's new and different and therefore it's outside of the legal sphere. Actually, it was, what is Bitcoin and how does it fit? And so the first question that arose was, is it money? Is it a financial product? In Australia, we looked primarily to whether something was a non-cash payment facility. But others arise too. Now, as these assets have become more and more complex, the question is, what is it? And so when we're trying to work out what it is legally, as we were doing with Bitcoin back in sort of 2013 and 14, and we were thinking, what are the properties of this? What are the features of this? So too would we do that now with any of these digital assets that are out there. And so you go back to things like, what does it mean when you hold this thing? What are the rights that you have? What are the obligations that arise? Who provides these rights to you? Who, who To whom are these obligations owed? And of course, you look to things like, what is the value of this thing? It doesn't depend on something else. And when you put all of this together, you actually start to see a pattern. And a lot of the time, these assets look and feel, or at least these rights that you've received, look and feel quite like the rights that you would have somewhere else perhaps indeed under Chapter 7 of the Corporations Act. So you'll have certain digital assets that, for instance, the value of which might vary dependent on something else. Now, that sounds a little bit like a derivative. Or it might be an asset where, in fact, you've contributed money or Ether or Bitcoin or some other crypto asset to a centralized pool, which is then used for a common purpose, and you receive a benefit at some time in the future. Now, that's a bit like an interest in a managed investment scheme. And from a legal perspective, well, we kind of apply the same rules as we would now. And that's just one area. We see this happening again if we look to anti-money laundering. We see it happening again if we look to taxation. But also you'll find that there might be some assets which fall outside of this so-called regulatory perimeter, Bitcoin potentially being one of them, but it doesn't mean it's unregulated because we then go back to, well, does that mean in the normal world when something doesn't fall under the bucket of assets?
six regulatory perimeter that it's non-regulated? No, we kind of say if you're providing something to someone and you're making promises to them, well, there may be other laws that apply, perhaps contract, perhaps property rights. And indeed, if those someones are real people, you're probably going to find that our competition and our consumer law in particular are going to be relevant too. Thanks, Hannah. We're going to come back to what the ACCC has said about its interest in this area. Um, We do have an odd regulatory structure in Australia where consumer protection in the financial sector is handed over to ASIC. So I think there are issues about where the proper regulatory setting uh, should fall. I think the frustration that I have is that people jump to this question of, you know, is it a financial product and what type of financial product it is without ever answering the property law question at the bottom of it. And I wonder whether it would be helpful if instead of splitting hairs over, you know, whether it's a financial product and if so, what kind of financial product it is, why wouldn't it be open to the government just to make a regulation that says if something has these attributes, then it is or is not a financial product in its own right. Um, And then if you do things to that, so if you think about pretend it's a piece of real estate, you can do a whole lot of things to that, like have a property trust or have derivatives over that and so on. But everybody's perfectly clear that the thing that underlies it is property. Why don't we do that here? Well, actually, we do. It's just because people got so concerned, particularly internationally, by some of the statements by overseas regulators, um, in particular the uh, SEC over in the US, that they immediately jumped to that question of, is it a financial product? It does. Do, am I, should I be worried about ASIC? And you're 100% right. When we're looking at and when we focus on what are those rights and obligations, we actually go back to what is the thing itself? What is, forget about the tech, forget about the fact that we call it a token. What are you actually receiving? And the example of property is a brilliant one because when we talk about, you know, have I received property? Well, you could say, what does it even mean to buy real estate? Well, actually, it means you have the rights that are provided to you on the certificate of title. Now, that's a record of ownership that is administered and managed by and ultimately the land titles office. And as you say, you can then say that that is real property. It's not a financial product. But if you stick it in a trust and you sell interest in that, well, you've got an interest in a managed investment scheme. It doesn't change the property. The property itself, that underlying has not changed, but the instrument that you've received is different and distinct. And the exact same thing happens here. So, for example, if we were to have digital certificates of title, which we kind of have already, but they were on a distributed ledger, well, that's just a change to the ledger on which this piece of property, the rights that you have that are enforceable against third parties are actually recorded. If you were, however, to say that actually the rights to that are now owned by 20 or 30 people, all of which you have an interest in that property, well, then you've probably created an interest in a managed investment scheme. And these two are distinct and can exist at the same time as we have now. And I think we get so wrapped up in this question of, do we need to be regulated? Is there a license that's required? What's the documentation? That we forget that, A, 
we record things on registers all the time. We record things on digital registers all the time. And that doesn't change the nature of the thing. What changes it is actually what are the rights that you have? And when we talk about now a lot of the time this tokenization, the concept of a tokenization of a real-world asset, if all that you've done is actually taken that asset and said the record of ownership of this asset exists on a distributed ledger, that should not change the nature of the asset itself. If you change the rights that you have to the asset, that's when you may change the nature of what you've received. But that's no different to whether it's recorded on paper, Excel, managed by a third party. It's just a matter of what do you have legally and looking through and beyond the technology. I guess I struggle a bit with what are they used for other than trading? Why are they relevant to business generally? So I I think in a sense it's the wrong question. So basically it's it's like, you know, you can have a car collection and you, you can drive your cars around, but there is a cohort of people with whom you can trade cars and they have value. So what, what you've basically got here in the world of digitization is you can digitize anything and you've now got a digital token. If you can find a cohort of people who would like to trade those tokens, whether they be swap cards, whether they be tulips, whether they be casino chips underlying your digital token, you've now got the potential for trade. And what digitization opens up, because you can so easily and quickly trade digital tokens compared to the physical asset, you couldn't easily buy and sell a car between me and Sydney and someone in New York. Whereas if you had the digitized registration certificate and everyone was prepared to recognize it, you could do that in a jiffy. So it's created the opportunity for trade that previously wasn't thought viable or, or where it just wasn't logistically possible to trade. And what governments have discovered is that some people have found tokens that can be used to circumvent regulatory regimes. So because they can suddenly be given value, you now have a mechanism for bypassing, say, GST or tax because we're now using cars as our currency and governments have no uh, visibility of what you're doing. So what they're trying to grapple with is uh, a, a digital token being used in ways which they want to cover and regulate but haven't previously been able to even see or know what you're doing. And that's that's really what they're trying to grapple with. That's what makes this so tricky. It's not that people are necessarily doing anything wrong. It, it's just that it, it, it's not obvious what they're doing and how they're doing it because everyone's doing the same thing. They're trading a digital certificate. No one knows what what underlying that certificate, whether it's a banknote or a car or a tulip. Thank you. I, I get that. I guess in the example that you gave, the asset that has been digitised, the car can be used for driving around. Is there anything that sits beneath the assets that are being digitised and traded that we're talking about today? Can you do something with the asset that sits underneath it? 
Yeah, so, I mean, uh, artwork is a really good example. Artwork, musical works, you can have a million-dollar piece of art. To, to have the physical possession of that million-dollar piece of art is a pain in the neck. You've got to secure it. You've got to keep it in an appropriately humidified environment. And, and historically, to trade it, you had to actually take it to the buyer who would want someone to inspect it for, you know, authenticity and all the rest of it. Now, if you can take the authenticated painting and have a digital token that represents it, you can now trade that freely all over the world. And as long as everybody recognises that token as as uh, legitimately based on that true authenticated piece of art, it can now freely be traded. So potentially, it's much higher value because the market is massively expanded. You don't have to fly the piece of art in a you know, um, uh, hermetically sealed container all around the world and then get it authenticated again. May I just jump in there, though? I, I think when we talk about art, it's quite interesting because, you know, Philip, you're talking about a piece of art. Well, what does that actually mean? Because if you own a million-dollar piece of artwork, you have a right to hang it on your wall, but you don't have a necessarily have copyright in that. So you can't then print T-shirts with that image on them and sell them. Same thing happens here. And what we need to think about is when you've created a token, and I think we're getting a little bit beyond some of these concepts now, but it's, it's quite important to understand. You go back to the idea of what is it that you've actually provided someone? Does that token or is that token actually titled to the artwork? which then means whoever holds it actually has the right to that painting. And so, yes, it may be in a hermetically sealed room. But if you decide, actually, you've got this incredible palatial house, which has the appropriate climate controls, well, then you should be able to say, I don't want this sitting somewhere else. I want it in my dining room. And you should be able to do that if what you've received is actually the right to own it, the actual title to the painting. If, however, what you've received is just a right to say that you can go and look at that painting, well, then that's quite different. That's not title to the painting. That's some other form of right. It could be a property right, perhaps, although query how it would be enforceable against someone else. But you could also say, well, actually, I own a portion of it. And then you say, well, if 100 of us own a portion of this, is that, again, some sort of interest in a trust that owns that painting? Or could you say, actually, what I've transferred is not even the painting, but the copyright to the painting. And then you may not have the right to go and take it and put it on your wall, but you have the right to go and sell t-shirts, which arguably could be more valuable than the painting itself. All of these are the same thing that could be in a digital token related to that painting. So it comes down to, again, not the technology, but what are the rights that you've given someone? Yes, and I think, I think I mean, that's a good way of putting it because what it really means is you can tokenize anything. It, it can be property. It can be any right. It's a bit like saying, look, you, you can own a, a piece of real estate. You, you can live in it. You can rent it out. You, you can just keep it in a portfolio. So I could own property on the other side of the world that I've never seen, and I can trade it, um, and I can prove I own it, but I don't have to live in it. Same with a piece of artwork. Some people buy them to trade, like the car collections, and never actually bother driving it. They don't care because for them, it, it it's tradable 
value. So I, I think the key thing is, as I, as I was trying to sort of articulate before, um, the, the token is whatever you you can tokenize anything and everything, and all that digitization does is uh, massively increase the opportunities to trade it if you can find others who also want to trade it and make it hard to for governments to see what you're doing or understanding what you're doing because all you see is digital tokens flying all over the planet at hyperspeed when no one knows what they represent. And so how do you regulate it? How do you know if it's being used to circumvent some regulatory regime or whether it's perfectly innocuous? Yeah, and I think that gets us to a, to a point talking about uh, regulation or the lack of regulation. I mean, from a consumer protection perspective, when you're dealing with assets that, that are inherently intangible, that, that sort of does tend to raise at first sight some, um, some policy issues. I mean, do consumers need to be protected in relation to these types of assets because of their, the very nature of the, of the asset? So I guess a couple of questions. One is, um, how are these assets regulated in Australia? Or indeed, are they regulated? Um, do they need to be regulated? And how does Australia compare? So, uh, Hannah, do you want to uh, respond to that? So I think if we look at the Australian regime, and when we're talking about regulation of digital assets and should we be regulating them and where do they exist, the first thing to remember is, of course, this is possibly already regulated. You go back to that question of what are the rights? What are the obligations? What have you actually received when you've received that particular token? Because token can really be anything. It's the rights that you've acquired that matter. If we say, well, it's digital and therefore the laws don't apply, well, that's not quite correct either. If you think about it, there are laws that apply when you buy something online. There are, if, for example, you're buying an online subscription to a newspaper. That's all digital. That's purely digital um, digital uh, rights. That's a right to access information, which doesn't exist in physical form, potentially. That is protected by consumer law. And we've got a whole raft of cases which actually talk about, you know, if, for example, you're an overseas company targeting people in Australia with subscriptions to your your newspaper, perhaps, well, you're probably actually carrying on a business in Australia, notwithstanding the fact that you're not physically here or that everything is transacted over the internet. So we already deal with this in the consumer protection space and say, if we're providing something to someone in Australia and they are an individual in that context, they are protected by our Australian consumer law. And that applies to tokens too. And I'm using the word token because it doesn't matter what the asset actually is. Those same laws will apply if you are targeting people in that personal, domestic or household context or if it's underneath the threshold of $100,000. If that product, however, is a financial product, we have similar laws under the ASIC Act as well, which means that, again, it doesn't matter if this is simply a product which is in our consumer space or a product which is regulated from a financial product perspective, you still need to make sure that you, for example, are not misleading or deceptive. There are no false representations. You consider things like unfair contract terms. 
you make sure that what a consumer is actually receiving is what you've told them they're going to receive. And if, in fact, you've said to someone, we are taking in your money to build this incredible network, but you never have any intention of providing that network to them. And in fact, what you're going to do is siphon that money off into your own Swiss bank account and abscond with it never to be seen again. Well, that's kind of illegal. It's called fraud. And it doesn't matter whether there's a digital token that you've provided to someone or there's even no digital token at all. What you've done is against our laws. And that applies regardless. And we've got similar laws around the world. I think Australia, though, because we have a principles-based regulatory system, means that we're able to capture a lot of these activities already. So unlike elsewhere in the world where perhaps some of the definitions that people look to are not as broad, or perhaps they look to legislative definitions as opposed to common law definitions of things like property, it makes it a little bit more difficult to find that legal hook. And I say a bit more difficult because it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means that, for example, if you're looking at can are we regulating or do we have oversight of a token in the US, a lot of the time they'll try and bend over backwards to fit a token into the regime of is something a security under the definition in the Howey test because they can't really fit it into perhaps the definition of a derivative under the laws which are administered by the CFTC or indeed their consumer laws aren't as broad as ours. Whereas in Australia, we say actually we have principles-based definitions for financial products. We have principles-based definitions um, and principles-based obligations under our consumer law. And similarly with property law too, we go back to the common law. And when you look at all of these together, we're actually able to cover the field of most of these things, even Bitcoin in fact. <laughs> so, so I think what I'm hearing from, is that uh, uh, there's a regulatory system that applies uh, you know, for, sort of despite that these may be digital assets uh, rather than because. Uh, and I guess the question is, is there anything about these digital assets that requires a, a specific regulatory regime? Um, I, I just I just know we, we did uh, mention the uh, Senate report. And one of the things that the, the Senate report is recommending that there ought to be uh, market licensing for digital currency exchanges. So is there a need for specific regulation because of the, the, the characteristics of these assets? So what's really interesting is not only if you look at the Senate report, which was by a specific committee of the Senate who was looking into this in general, it's, it's not a proposal for new law. And before it got, gets to that stage, it will need to go through another number of levels of consideration and review by, in particular, Treasury, as well as, of course, Parliament, um, were anything to come to fruition. But it's also important to look at that alongside the report that was issued by ASIC on the 29th of October, because both of them look at similar concepts of, do we need another regime? And the Senate report quite rightly said, you know, if you're providing a market to someone, well, perhaps you owe obligations as the operator of that market. If the products that are available on that market are financial products, then we already have a regime for that. And that's the regime under Chapter 7 of the Corporations Act that applies to operating a financial market. And that will apply whether you're an Australian or a foreign market. It doesn't require you to be a clearing and settlement system. It just requires you to be that venue on which bids and offers are able to be made and a 
uh, and that meet that effectively that meeting place. However, what the Senate report is looking at is saying, okay, well, we have this regime, but it is designed for a system where you probably have a very large centralized body who is operating that. And we don't have very many entities who have that license. What happens if perhaps this is a slightly smaller organization and it is more decentralized, but it's still clearly a market? Is that really a, an appropriate regime? And then the other thing they've said is, well, what happens if the products aren't financial products? Because if they're not, you don't fall within that bucket again. So what they're looking at there, as I understand it, is actually what happens when you're doing something which may not require that all that same level of regulation and rigor as a full-blown market license, but you kind of still want something more than what we have now. And the whole reason behind this is consumer protection, ensuring we have an, a fair and efficient market that is able to be operated, that we have certainty that when people go onto that market, they're actually able to have transaction finality and settlement. These are pretty significant concepts which we have anyway. I think when you also look at that in the context of ASIC's paper, what ASIC has said is, hold on a second, we do already have this regime. And so for those, and we have it for products that are financial products. And if we were going to look at, at introducing something new, well, we've also got to make sure that if, for example, that product is already regulated because it's already a financial product, we need to make sure that the same rules apply whether that product is traded on a distributed ledger or whether it's traded on a centralized database because ultimately it's what is the product itself and what is the rigor that we need behind the market that is being operated. And so what you'll probably find is if this was to get to a stage where the law was to be changed, and remember we're a little bit of a way off that just yet, you may find that we're not, that it doesn't necessarily cut across our existing regime, but it's in addition to, and it covers that gap of the products that are not necessarily fully regulated under Chapter 7 now, perhaps, which would of course require other amendments to Chapter 7 to even bring it into the regime. But also it may say, well, perhaps we have a market's light, which is somewhere between the obligations of perhaps an AFSL holder or a markets license holder. But the place you're going to start from is most likely what do markets currently have to do as opposed to saying what happens in crypto and let's try and facilitate crypto in and of itself. It's actually what do we currently require to ensure the equal, fair and efficient operation of a market and the protection of consumers? Could I just um, maybe add a, a supplement to that just quickly? Um, you know, if you go back to uh, why Austrac was introduced. The, the government said we can't always see what's going on, but we assume sooner or later it's going to manifest itself by a deposit of cash in your bank account. And so if Austrac reports to us $10,000 or more, it will trigger an inquiry as to where did that come from and what were you doing? What they've realised is, of course, that now with tokens, uh, you can be engaging in regulated conduct, uh, even proscribed conduct, but it won't necessarily manifest itself in a deposit of cash because you've now found another way of storing that value, uh, which is not visible and which isn't susceptible to Austrac visibility either. And so 
as Hannah says, the, the, the conduct and the products are covered by the current regime, but there needs to be a mechanism to forensically discover what you're doing and, and so that you can make sure what you intend to regulate conduct or product uh, is effective. Crypto and digital assets are obviously a global phenomenon. How does Australian regulation differ from overseas in major markets? It seems like most jurisdictions are still trying to work out the best way to tackle digital assets. As a trend, we're seeing governments and regulators try to find the appropriate way to bring crypto assets into regulatory frameworks where appropriate. And we talk, you know, often you hear that the crypto assets or cryptocurrencies are unregulated. But I think it's probably more correct to say that our laws were created for specific purposes to protect against specific harms. Um, and when we look through the technology to what the asset actually does or how the asset might actually interact with or impact consumers, that's where we need to look at what our laws should respond with or how our laws should be designed. So there aren't very many jurisdictions calling wholesale for new legislative frameworks for specific digital assets. It's more about what are the on-ramps? How do we bring this new concept of digital assets into the legislative frameworks to achieve the same objectives of protecting consumers and so on? Um, so for example, in the UK, there's been significant work done in relation to the treatment of crypto assets under common law principles of property. You know, do they constitute property? Um, and we've seen developments in the US in particular where they've sort of tacked on mention of digital assets and, and cryptocurrencies into the infrastructure bill, um, which caused a little bit of uh, an uproar. But the key point here is that not we don't need to focus on the fact that there is a digital asset and it's a particular new technology. It's how we use those digital assets that will give rise to the actions or the activities that need to be either regulated or protected. So in some cases, I think we need to be conscious that shoehorning digital assets into legislative regimes may not be the most user-friendly or long-term policy solution. You know, we are hearing from the market that we need clarity um, and, and people who are setting out to build businesses around this technology need confidence, um, which is going to require a balance between promoting innovation um, and safeguarding consumers from some of the harms that can manifest and, and they're the harms that, that our laws are already designed to protect against. So generally, if we're looking at some themes, we're seeing there's a call for, for legislative frameworks to be technology agnostic. Um, so financial services using digital assets as a solution should be treated the same way as financial services that are embedding sort of legacy architectures. Um, we're seeing a call for frameworks to be principle-based rather than overtly prescriptive. Um, and to use a risk-based approach, I think, is, is going to be valuable in, in most instances because, again, the technology will continue to evolve. Um, and it is really important that we pave the way for innovation and that we don't stifle all of the new opportunities that come with this technology. This is the BLS Report. I'm John Keeves, and we're listening to Susanna Wilkinson from HSF, Hannah Glass from KWM, and Philip Argy. Okay, I just have to ask this question. Why is Bitcoin worth anything? It's not backed by anything of value. Is this just tulip mania all over again? Or is all money just really a figment of our imagination? That is a great question. I think 
if we start with the second part of this, the question is, what is money? And then you go back to, okay, well, money is actually something we define in as a in relation to its economic properties. So it's a unit of account, a store of value, and a means of making exchange. And it's usually widely accepted as that means of uh, as that um, means of exchange. That in and of itself doesn't require it to be backed by a government. It doesn't require it to be backed by anything at all. It's actually what we accept and what has those properties. So if we look at Bitcoin and we say, and this was the question of is Bitcoin money, and we found that, you know, Bitcoin, the value clearly fluctuates. So it's not a store of value. In fact, the price today and the price tomorrow will be different. The price between the start of this podcast and the end of this podcast will also probably be different. Not a store of value. But I think what is interesting is there is clearly value that people ascribe to it. The fact that it's now existed for 12 years in the wild and 13 years in, in conceptually shows that people actually do see value in this. Now, a lot of the time, value isn't necessarily pegged to something else. It's actually a matter of perhaps value we ascribe to the technology value that the community ascribes to it. And therefore, if we look at all of this together, we can say, well, yes, what is value? Nothing has value. Everything is meaningless. But it's really about, as a society, we accept that value is given to something by the market and that the value that is held is dependent on those properties that it has inherently. Bitcoin, in fact, you may even say is perhaps underpinned by the price of electricity and the computing power that is used to actually maintain that network. And of course, it's underpinned by the fact that we all recognize the power in that technology that records all transactions of Bitcoin. So does it have value? Yes. Is it money? No. Is it tulip mania? Well, look, the price fluctuates wildly and will probably continue to do so, but that doesn't mean that it is not valueless at all. It is certainly something which will be here for a long time yet. So that question of volatility is really important because the value of anything depends what attribute of it you value. The reason we value a stable currency is because you've got some certainty that if you earn $100 today, you can get $100 of value in buying something with it. But it, it, the minute you go on the foreign exchange market, your $1 of value in Australia might not be worth a dollar. It might change tomorrow. It's only worth 75 cents US and the day after that, 77 cents. So Bitcoin is the same. And, and the difference is most people don't value it as a stable currency. They value it because it's not doesn't have a high visibility with regulators and it's not easily traced and it's hard to know you've got it. So it, it's got attributes which give it value different from currency as well as being a quasi-currency. So it's a, it's a tradable asset, not necessarily with a high visibility. When that, that attribute is given a high value, then Bitcoin has a high value. Um, so the RBA says crypto is a fad. Uh, Senator Hume says it's not. Um, and then the chair of ASIC says exercise great caution with cryptocurrencies. So who should we believe? Uh, look, 
as I said earlier, humans love to solve problems and we have a habit of characterizing something as a problem when it's either slow or expensive, inefficient, maybe unsustainable or, or even inequitable. And I think the, te the technological solution that is presented by distributed ledger technology and therefore digital assets, it's not going to go away. There certainly has been hype and a degree of frenzy around crypto um, that I think will probably fade in time, especially after a few more people get stung by opportunists. Um, but I don't believe that we'll shelve the potential benefits of the technology altogether. And a really good example of that is central bank digital currencies. Um, the idea that you can have programmable value of money. Uh, and, and I think also the efficiencies that come through the systemic um, application of the technology. It's not to say that there won't be teething problems and there will be power politics at play, there'll be vested interests at stake, um, but it, it's not going away. Okay. Uh, well, thank you. Well, I'm off to Bunnings to buy some tulip bulbs, uh, which I will then uh, have represented by digital tokens and set up my own exchange. Uh, look, that's been a great discussion, um, and we we may well have you to have you come back and dig a bit deeper into these fascinating and important issues of cryptocurrency, uh, digital tokens, and so forth. So, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, thank you to my co-presenter Pamela Hanrahan. Um, I'm John Keyes, and this has been the BLS Report in honour of the late Professor Bob Baxt AO, produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia in collaboration with 2SER. Cryptocurrency is certainly fast-moving. Since we recorded our podcast in late November 2021, the Commonwealth Treasurer has announced a payments and cryptocurrency reform plan. It has been reported that early next year, that is 2022, Mr Frydenberg plans to begin talks on a licensing framework for digital currency exchanges that will regulate the purchase and sale of cryptocurrency assets and on a custody regulatory regime for businesses that hold crypto assets on behalf of consumers. So stay tuned. We plan to do further podcasts on cryptocurrency and digital assets in the new year.